So, like I said before in the introduction, we're, we're trying to understand where the, the culmin, like where, how does our actions flow out of our theology, right? That's something that um, there's always a, a conflict in, especially younger people's uh, understanding of philosophy and theology is, okay, there's all this theory in my head, but how does that then translate into actions, right? A lot of people don't want to understand the why. They want to understand how does this benefit me? How can I get some pragmatism out of this, right? Like you hear all the sermons uh, from popular megachurch pastors, you're going to hear a lot of that, right? Well, we're not going to get so much into the theology part of it. I want to give you five easy steps to be a better husband or be a better son or, you know, so on and so forth. You've probably all heard that in one way or another, right? Or just us talking about the love of God and how you have to let go of nebulous past sins or whatever it is. It's not very specific sometimes, or it's too specific. And trying to find the balance is very difficult. But I'm going to try, I'm going to really try today to help you guys understand that our theology, the foundations, the philosophy, what we meditate upon, does actually cause the actions to come, right? We have to get our minds right first, and then the, the actions will follow. It doesn't seem that way, but that's, that's the way that the Bible describes it, and that's the way that I, in my own life I've seen uh, actual progress in growing in, in, uh, into the image of Christ. So let's turn to Galatians 1.1, because this lesson actually really just surrounds Galatians. We're going we're gonna to hop through it, um, looking at a couple verses here and there. So I'll, I'll let you guys turn to that. But it starts in, in uh, one one. And once again, I'm just tempted to read the whole thing, but <clears throat> we're going to just jump around. So in the first part of Galatians 1.1, Paul opens up, and in verse 3 he says this, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So why do we read that first part? Because you'll notice that whenever Paul opens any letter, really, he always motivates this under the gospel, right? The, the way the New Testament frames things is always, here's the gospel, and because of the gospel, what he's done for you, then act this way, right? And so he immediately then jumps into, well, what's, the, what's a nice word for it? Admonishment? Like, right? He, he basically uh, takes a two-by-four and hits this church upside the head because they've been chasing after the Galatian heresy. And so that's what he goes into, right? But he motivated it in the gospel first, right? He said, here's what God's done for you. He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this age. And he did that because it was the will of God to do that. And because of that action, the gospel, which that's microcosm of the gospel, that's why he's due this glory forever and ever, right? So you think about the glory of God, you think about how great he is, you think about what he's done for you, and then he's modifying behavior. You see that connection? And why the reason why we're starting with this is because we have to understand that when we think about cultivating spiritual fruit, right? That's actions. When you cultivate the ground, you're churning it up, you're adding fertilizer, you're, you're creating an environment in which the plant has nourishment and a, and a place to grow, right? Even though we read a uh, parable of the sower where it says they sow seed, they still had to take a plow, right, and dig up the ground into furrows. They had to actually do some work to get the soil prepared. And when you have plants, you can't just water them. There has to be uh, nutrients that's added to the soil. Now, some soil is very rich, and it will just grow things without even trying, but 
you'll have crop rotation, if you've heard of that, right, where the soil gets depleted, and so it needs to be uh, rotated where you don't have it for a season so that things will happen. Um, and there's so much more. There's a lot of agricultural analogies that are in the scriptures that they would understand that we kind of have to do a little bit of uh, digging because we, are, we're, we don't work those jobs anymore, so we've kind of lost those analogies. But the cultivation we're talking about, this cultivating of our, of our spiritual soil, if we want to talk about that, is the actions that are all throughout the New Testament. You see all these commands to do various things, always, once again, motivated by the gospel. But we might get stuck in, okay, well, if I'm not doing these things, am I sinning? Or is God going to bless me based on my works, right? That's a, that's a difficult question because kind of yes and kind of no, right? It's, there's some scriptures that you could say, yeah, God blesses you if you do these things. And other ones, it says, well, he still loves you regardless of your actions. So it's, that's why it's a complex uh, lesson. But let's look down on Galatians to 2, uh, starting in verse 16. It says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in, in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one is justified. So very clear passage that clearly explains that, once again, no one's justified by the law, and we are being faithful to God, right? We are, we're putting our faith in Christ because we want to be justified. That's something that we desire. Once again, in uh, skipping down to verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So he really hammers this point, right? It's not about works. It's about what Christ has done. And yet the action we take is this faith we put in Christ. Faith is trust and belief, right? So we trust him and we believe what he says. So we are believing in what he said about himself and what he said he was going to do in terms of the resurrection of the dead, right? That's a very important point for Christianity. Don't, don't skip over that. Sometimes we think of just believe that he died on the cross, but the gospel very clearly in the scriptures has to do with also the resurrection from the dead. So we have to think of both of those things. You have to believe that he defeated death, proved that he was God, did the impossible by raising himself from the, from the dead. And in that, prove though all that he said, all that we can trust is true. And there's so many metaphors of our own spiritual resurrection, right? Our own heart of stone being taken out, our heart of flesh being put in, that is about that spiritual resurrection. So Christ resurrected in the same way that we can be resurrected as well, right? We look forward to that. That's where our hope is. So are we trying to attain uh, this this goal of cultivating by our own efforts. This, uh, I, like I said, if, if you guys have any questions, raise your hands. We'll try to, we'll try to work through this a little bit because it's, it's both. It's yes and no, right? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do stuff. I, am, I have works that I'm trying to do, but I understand that these works were prepared for me beforehand that I might walk in them, right? You know that scripture. In Galatians 3, so now we're skipping down a little bit further, it says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? So, the Holy Spirit is in us, working, and is effective, right? If you've seen your life and you've looked back at where you were and now where you are, hopefully there's some change, right? Hopefully there is a growing in grace, and you can't even really pinpoint where it is. Personally, I can't even really pinpoint the part where I was saved. I know it was generally this time, but I'd been in church for a while, and I had known so much of the gospel, but then one day my heart changed, and I desired the things of God, and I can't even tell you what day that was. It, it just happened over time. It's a miracle of grace to a degree that, uh, that like, my, my mind has changed and I desire the things of God, but I can't then formulaically break it down to explain it to someone else, right? If someone else asks me, well, how do I do it? How do I get saved? And I, I feel at a loss sometimes. I'm like, well, it's different for so many people. I've heard so many stories of different ways people were saved through YouTube or through reading the scriptures alone or hearing it from a neighbor, or uh, through a radio broadcast, right? It's like the Lord uses so many different avenues. It's always the gospel. It's always communicated. Sometimes it's communicated straight out of scriptures. Other times it's paraphrased. Even in the New Testament, you see people quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the translation is sometimes slightly different, and that's, it's an amazing thing. But the point is, is that we can't even point and point or understand how we were saved a lot of the times, right? And yet, we then try to break down the life afterwards and think it's going to be a very simple, okay, here's step one, right? Oh, you became a Christian? Great. Step one is this. Then step two, and then go on going down to, I don't know, 100 steps, right? Or the 10-step program or something like that. And we think it's going to be that clear. It's going to be that well-defined. And what are we trying to do? I think that the error we're slipping into is trying to then leave God aside. Okay, God, great. You got me through the door, and now I'll walk the rest of the way on my own. And that's a trap, right? That's, that's something that I think the devil does to us to get us to rely on our own power because the fact is, if we rely on our own power, we're going to fail. We're going to fail over and over and over again. Then we're going to become hypocrites because we're realizing we're failing. But we don't want anyone else to, want to know that, right? So then we start lying about how we're doing. How are you doing, brother? Oh, just fine. Perfect. Great. Nothing to pray for. I'm good, right? Have this all. We all do that, right? We've all done that accidentally probably, right? where we really do have something we're struggling with, we're stressed, they can see it on us, and yet we're like, oh, it's fine. Nope, good, I'm, I'm all right. Maybe patience, just pray for patience or something like that, right? But, th- and that's because of fear and other, all kinds of other things, right? Um, we see the problems in the New Testament. Oh, I want to be a part of the New Testament church. Have you read Corinthians? It was a mess. It's always been a mess, and that's something that we struggle with, right? That um, we want to, um, we want to be more like Christ. That's a deep desire, but we don't feel like we have the pathway or the way to do it because it's not clearly defined. And unfortunately, that's because people are all different, right? The Holy Spirit works in each one of us in a different way. We're all a composition of different things. He gives gifts to different people in different ways. So it's not going to be, this is what you do. It's going to be cultivate these things, right? And you see that in Paul's letters. There's so much, you can't cover it all, but you see him frame it, frame the actions we're supposed to take in the gospel, and then he leaves it up to us to understand where our weaknesses are and to seek out the gifts that he's given to us in the church, other believers, to confess, to find older Christians to guide us, to, uh, he gives us the scriptures themselves for us to read. He works through that. 
So the point is, having read that Galatians part, I kind of got a little bit off track, but bringing it back, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit. We need to believe that he is working in us, even though we can't see it. Just like a plant grows, and you go to sleep, and you wake up, and oh, look, there's a foot of growth there. We don't see it. We can't actually, like, track it, right? If you, re- you, if you record a plant in a time lapse, you can see it growing. But under our own perception of time, we can't see that. And so we have to trust that the Lord is doing something, even if we not, can't necessarily see it. But in the same way, like I said, you water a plant, you add fertilizer, you trim off the dead leaves so that it can grow. Um, if it's by itself, you have to sometimes pollinate it itself. There's all kinds of analogies of how you have to tend to plants for them to actually grow and thrive. I'm sure we all had a house plant that died just because we don't deal with agriculture, so we don't know how to take care of them. At least my plants have all died. So uh, as I've learned about my lime trees, this is kind of stuff that has helped me in this lesson. Uh, we're now going to kind of turn over to a parallel section. Actually, it's kind of funny how much uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians all have a lot of parallel and sister verses. Let's turn to uh, Philippians 3 real quick. No, let's start in verse 9. I want to be found in him, found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. So you see that, you hear that from Galatians. But that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see Paul's desire. I want to be in that communion with Christ. I want to suffer like Christ, and I want to obtain this resurrection like his. That's convicting for me because I don't always think that way. Verse 10, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. And in, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. It's a great passage. Yes, brother. Oh, yeah, I just kept reading this straight down. I know that it only says uh, Philippians 3, 10, and 11. I just kept going because I think that that part at the bottom of it, which is uh, 12 through uh, 16, so you can add that to your notes if you want, just reading all the way through 16. This entire section, I wanted to continue on because this is the mystery of the Christian life, right? We rely on the Holy Spirit, yet we don't passively live. We are commanded to be active, And we see that in the attitude of Paul. He really exhausts the language here in talking about straining, pressing, right? He wants to get to this goal, this upward call. He wants to be like Christ. He leaves the things behind. I'm actually reading The Pilgrim's Progress uh, again. It's a great book. And you see that. In the very beginning, the character called Christian leaves all of his, his stuff behind. He tries to get his wife and children to follow him to this kingdom of God, 
and they're trying to hold him back. His friends are trying to hold him back. His, his neighbors are trying to hold him back, and you just see him cast it all off, and he's, he's heading towards it. And that's a hard thing for us to comprehend, that we're, we're, we're separating ourselves from the world, right? We're leaving all these worldly things behind, all these things that people care about that, that don't really matter, and we're straining forward. And you can see, I think that's actually where the strain is. The strain isn't in, like, you're climbing up a mountain, and it's just a really steep mountain, but straining more against all the things holding you back, right? Trying to grab you like crabs in a bucket, trying to pull you back down into the bucket. Have you ever seen that analogy? Like, one's trying to get out, and the other ones will grab it and pull it back in. It's an analogy we usually use for uh, uh, certain societies and things where people can never get ahead. They can never actually get out of the place that they're in because all the things around them. So, well, well if you're, gonna, you're not going to get out, I'm going to get out, and then no one gets out, right? So in the same way, I think that's where that straining. I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards this goal. Later in other letters, Paul talks about running a race. And it's, it's been said, and it's true, that when you think about people that train for the Olympics, they train for four years for a crown that lasts a moment, right? And they will, they will dedicate their lives to that, for that goal. And that is really what we should be doing, too, for a crown that's eternal, right? We don't just get it for a moment, and then you forget about the person unless they get on a box of Wheaties, right? Does anyone know anyone that's won the Olympics in the last 16 years, right, from, from 16 years ago? No, we forget about it. We probably don't even know who won this year. Unless they're, once again, unless they're, they're famous, they're in a commercial, or they're on a box of Wheaties. We don't really know who they are. I think that, um, I'm trying to think about that now. I, I can't even really think of it. I know the gymnast, uh, I can't think of her name, though. The gymnast that was amazing and the swimmer who was amazing. Simone Biles. Simone Biles, and who's the swimmer? Michael Phelps. Those are the ones I know, because they have, they've won the most medals. But the point is, that we should be straining for this goal in the same way that people can dedicate their lives to a singular goal. There's no way you can be great at something on that level, or even a great artist, or a great architect, or a great designer, because that's the field I work in, so I see that. The great people are the people that understand that they have only so much time, so much ability, and they don't get distracted by things that really don't matter. They understand those things are useful and can be enjoyable and things like that. I'm not diminishing any kind of leisure time or things that we have, recreation. But they understand that there's certain things that are more important and they can only dedicate it. For us, what are those things? I'm getting a little bit off, of, off, call, uh, off topic, but when it talks about the upward call in the notes, it didn't really talk about this, and I was really contemplating this idea. And it's, it's frustrating, especially in our modern environment, and the, the news that we've had going on, like the things on the news that have happened around the country, I don't want to get into those topics. But when you think about all the problems we have, the solutions always revolve around electing certain people, passing certain laws, and trying to obtain some kind of fix or utopia through external forces, like we can control those things. But we can't legislate what's in the heart of people, right? You can't, not yet do kind of thought crime, right? Where you can like figure out what people are thinking or what people are motivating or what people are wanting to do. There's so many complexities to that. It's frustrating to hear it as a worldly person that really the way that you make a change is you change the things you can control, right? You pour into your family, um, including you know, brothers, sisters, cousins. You affect your smaller community, your neighbors and the people that you actually can 
effect, right? You go to church, and you pour into those people, and we form these relationships where we actually affect each other overall. The, it's an amazing thing that we have this, this fight. You've probably heard this fight. Is Christianity individualistic, like America, or is it socialistic, or socialist, or communistic, right? We, there's, that's something people will always bring up. I don't know if you've heard that, that argument, but they'll say, oh, look, in Acts, they sold everything they had and gave to the community. It's communism, right? But the Bible talks about how our choices are our own. We're responsible for our own choices, and we stand before God judged, right, for our own individual actions. So it's very individualistic. And I think, it's, once again, it's complex. It's a little bit of both. It's, yes, we're individuals, and yes, we have individual choices. The, the relationship I have with God is between me and him. And yet, how many commands in the Bible, you probably can think of some, where it says, give up those individual rights? Not because someone's forcing you, or there's a law that says you have to, or you're guilted into it, or someone says, oh, if you're a Christian, you have to give up this right to do this. But rather, something that happens inside, right? Once again, you figure out through the Holy Spirit guiding you through the scriptures, what are the things you need to give up to help other people? Have you ever thought about how Christ says to give to everyone that asks you? It's a hard command. Does that always help? No, right? This is the complexity of life. You give to everyone, every beggar that asks you, well, am I being a good steward of my money? What if they use it to hurt someone? What if I give to this person and then these other homeless people beat them up for it? It's actually something that happens, unfortunately. You can help a homeless person get an ID so that they can get a job, and then other homeless people will beat them up and take it in order to do— it happens. I've helped someone like that. It's very sad because, once again, it's the crab in the bucket. It's sometimes you need to give to organizations that can help those people much more effectively than you can because they will require them to be sober and to um, not fight in the, in the shelters and things like that. And that's something I've really thought about because those commands, when you read them, they're real right? There's something we have to struggle with. So this upward call, trying to understand these things, trying to meditate on these things, trying to figure out where is the wisdom in this? How do I do that? How do we do this? So let's turn back to Galatians. I'm going to read the uh, kind of the core passage that most people think about when we talk about cultivating spiritual fruit, and that's the spiritual fruit passage. So it's in Galatians 5, and in your notes, I think it starts in verse 16. Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus will have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires." If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. 
So we understand the image of fruit, fruit growing on a vine, uh, you know, as the, as the, as the trunk and the tree or the bush is nourished, so it bears fruit. And there's so many passages in the Bible talking about keeping with bearing fruit, right? You will know them by their fruits. Um, so what we're going to do now is we're going to kind of go through each one of these. Not all today. We're going to, we're, it's split in half. But we're going to go through it. And we're going to talk what is, what these spiritual fruit are not, what they are, and then how we can cultivate it. That's kind of the, the back, um, uh, that's kind of what the, the point of the, less, the rest of the lesson is. And I'm going to try to leave, uh, I tried to time this so we have about 10 minutes for questions and we can, we can dig in this a little bit more. One aside that is very frustrating, and that's when you speak a language for a long time and someone asks you to define a word like love, <laughs> that's very hard to do, right? If you're trying to define the word joy, that's very hard to do, right? The definitions change. So you look in the current dictionary, and it says something. And the most frustrating thing is when you get uh, one that doesn't really mean anything. It uses a bunch of synonyms and says, you know what we mean. Right? Like, that's kind of how it is. Uh, it's, it's, so I'm going to do my best here. I, I've added some stuff, uh, and we, we can talk about this. And hopefully I've, I've done a good job. So the first one's love. Let's consider what love is not. Love is not what our culture defines as, say, tolerance or acceptance or just an emotional response. It is that. There is emotion that is connected to it. We can't subdivide ourselves and say that I'm just my emotions or I'm just my, uh, you know, my logic brain. We, are, we live together with those things. Uh, I heard a very depressing quote, um, and it said that our... Our logical side is just there to justify our emotions. So we feel something, we do something based on how we feel about it, or what we really want, our desires, and then your logical side of your brain justifies whatever you just did, right? Including sin. So if you sinned, it's because, well, I had a good reason for it. Or if I did something impulsively, oh, well, really, there's a, there's a good reason for doing this, or I can justify this later. And in meditation and thinking about that, with myself, that's very true. We slip into that. That's why so many times in the Bible, it talks about self-control, understanding yourself and trying to control that approach. But love is not separated from emotion. We, there is emotion that comes through that as well. I want to I be clear about that because sometimes we can get very uh, cold in our definition of love. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, you don't have to turn there, it talks about love. It's a very famous uh, church, uh, I should say, wedding passage. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul says that love is not envious. It's not jealous for things that don't belong to you. It is not covetous. Second, love does not boast and isn't prideful. Do you boast in anything other than the Lord? What kind of things do we boast in? Ask yourself how that boasting is showing love, the love of God to others. John describes the boasting and prideful attitude of the world by saying in 1 John 2.16 in your notes, 
For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desire of the eye and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Desire is a, is a, is a difficult thing. We're motivated by desire. Things we desire are things we, we do. And that's the kind of philosophical problem, right? Is you can change your actions, but your actions are only changed if you desire to change them. See the conundrum? You will only change your actions and cultivate that self-control if your desire to do so has been changed. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, you always do what you desire to do. Right? That's why we have to pray to the only one who can change desires and rely on the Holy Spirit, because without him, good luck trying to change your desires. If you try to change your desires without having the Holy Spirit change your desires, then your desire is actually to show to other people you can control your desires. Track that, right? You're, try- you're becoming a hypocrite. You're trying to modify your behavior so other people will go, ooh, look at him. Right? And what does Christ say about that? You have received your reward. Right? You've received what you wanted, which is other people looking at you and saying, that guy looks super cleaned up. Wow, his bald head is super shiny. I love that. Or whatever. Yes. There, uh, what Brother Christian was saying was that Buddhism is about controlling your desires. And rightly so, people have pointed to desire as a good thing, but also as a very negative thing. And so, if the world is full of suffering, the key is to control your desires to the point where you don't desire anything, which is a, a strange way of looking at it. Um, Buddhism is weird because a lot of people think of it as a very... Uh, peaceful religion, but if you actually study Buddhism, at least Japanese Buddhism, it's all about trying to achieve a state of nirvana, which allows you to to exit out of the cycle of reincarnation so that you don't have to suffer anymore. You basically get annihilated and don't exist anymore. So that is their solution, which is no solution at all. What is love? We understand what love is not, It's not rude, it's not impolite, it's not boastful. But what is it? What is love? 1 John 4, 7 through 12 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means he satisfied the wrath of God. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, in that, you hear the definition a little bit, right? You hear what, this is what love is. If I can define it biblically, love is, in another place it says that there's no greater love than this, that a person lay down their life for their friends. Love is like what God has done for us, right? He loved us at our worst, right? 
You're worse than you think you are. I'm worse than I am, than I think that I am, right? Even my comprehension of how bad I am. And yet, as Romans says, he loved us when we were the most unlovable. Some people would die for a righteous person, right? If there was a righteous person unfairly on trial, I, I could probably give my, my I, I could trade it for that. And for, maybe for a good person, a person that's a good dad, right? He made some mistakes. Maybe, maybe I'd substitute myself for him. But like the worst person you can think of, would you substitute, substitute yourself for that person? No, no one would do that. And yet God did that for each one of us. That's the love that we're talking about. This love that goes beyond what the person has done and you're seeking the best for them. That's the best way I can think of love. You're seeking the best for someone. So when you tell them a harsh truth, even though they're going to hate you, even though they're going to yell at you, you're doing it because it's the best thing for them. When you discipline your children, even though they're going to be sad, they're going to cry, they're not going to enjoy that, but you're doing it because it's the best thing for them, right? You tell your friend a hard truth. Um, even the choices that you make, I'm not going to do this, but I'm going to do this for other people, for people in my church, for my neighbors, or whatever it is. I am sacrificing my own desires and my own uh, time that I have to do the recreational stuff I want to do, or even important things. And instead, I'm going to love this person in a way to help them grow when they really need the help, right? I'm going to be there for them. I'm going to, in a very small way, try to motivate my own behavior with love the same way that Christ loved me by dying for me. Does that make sense? Hopefully. How do we cultivate this kind of love? This kind of love is an amazing thing. When you think about the gospel, and when you really comprehend it, it doesn't make, it's, I can't even approach that kind of love for another person. It's, I can't even comprehend it. I love the people I love. I love you guys. But when really someone ticks me off, it's hard to love that person. It's really, really hard. Galatians 2.20, we read it. It says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you want to cultivate a love like Christ, a love for others that transcends how they treat you or transcends you being taken advantage of, right? That's something we worry about. We meditate upon this love that God had for us in Christ. We think about it. We pray about it. We meditate about it. We read, and we really read the Bible and try to understand this. We think about it, right? And out of that, the commands of Christ to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. I love that Pastor Rolla prays for the government, right? No matter, the government's always filled with terrible people, right? Because they're sinners like us. But even more so, they f I feel like, this is a little bit of a sidetrack, hopefully you'll agree with me. I can't remember if it was George Washington or John Adams who said this, but most people just want to be left alone. Right? We want to live our lives, go to the store, uh, have a relationship with people, um, go to work, come back home, spend our time with our children or with our brothers and sisters or our parents. We don't want to do more than that in our lives. We want things to change, but we don't really want to be the ones to do it. And because of that, it, the roles of HOAs or mayor or government officials tend to be busybodies. People that love getting other people's business, right? P 
people that love to start making rules for other people, and they have an idea of how things can be better, and so they get into roles of power, and they say, trust me, give me the power, I will fix things, right? So that kind of cultivates a very selfish, narcissistic, power-hungry structure in any kind of government situation. And although I, th I believe there are some good people in, in government, I, I, th I think there's good people everywhere. And I'm talking about actual Christians. Overall, I think that what it ends up happening is a lot of people that their, their goal is their desire, which is to remain in power and nothing else. And that can be frustrating. That can be hard for us. That can be hard that the people who are supposed to care for us in the same way, where they're supposed to love us and care for us and want the best for us, that's not always the case. And we have no control. We have no power over that. But it's not our job to try to change everything. Once again, this is where the, the conflict comes in. We trust the Lord that he's in control of all things. We trust the Lord that he is growing us in grace and that we are the Holy Spirit is active in our lives, bringing us situations in where we can practice these things. We can practice love. We can practice joy. We can practice patience. And we can grow in that self-control through the situations and relationships we have. The primary place where this needs to happen is the church, right? Because actually here, we have other Christians that are motivated by the same rule book, if you want to call it that way, right? The same set of commands that will help us bear with one another burdens, right? There's so many, once again, there's so many scriptures that talk about this, bearing with one another in love, right? Understanding that everyone's a sinner, and we need to love them. Love covers a multitude of sins, right? We need to love them and seek the best for them, even in the difficulty of living with other people. I was talking with my wife about this. You know, you get into, you get into arguments, and I was talking about it like, you know, the, the core of an argument is that I want my way and you want your way. And those things, don't, those things aren't the same thing, right? And so the, the key that I found is to say what I want, as blunt and as, as jerky as that sounds, and then say, say the same thing. Say it bluntly to me. What do you want right now? And then when we realize that it's rooted in selfishness or, or in, in something that can, can wait, then we, we can reach a compromise of what is actually the biblical way of resolving the argument and getting what the best thing is for it. It doesn't always work, but that's the thing we're working on. And in the same way, when I think about cultivating love, I think about that. What do I really want right now? And is that really the priority, or is that really take precedent over someone else? I've heard this said, I think it was Jonathan Edwards that said this, but he said, you know, if you don't look to your own interests, but look to those of the church— right? That's the scripture. Then you have the whole church looking for your interest rather than just you by yourself. But if you, if each one of us only looks to our own interest, we only have ourselves, right? And we can't always see things that we need. We can't always pray for ourselves all the time. Think if you had like 20 people praying for you. Praise God that my, my D group does that. They'll text me and say, oh, I've been praying for you. Like so encouraging because then I can say, great, pray for this, you know? I need more encouragement. And while I can't pray or I'm distracted or my mind's you know, I know that the Holy Spirit is working in that because I have other Christians praying for myself or praying for me. And so then I do that for them, right? So then this, this relationship, it's beyond what we can see or we can understand. I think that I've kind of done my best trying to cultivate love or, and try to understand what that is and give you some guys some practical stuff. So let's move on. And if we have some time, we'll cycle back and you guys ask questions about it.
Next one is joy. What, is, what joy is not? Joy is not simply the absence of trouble, pain, and suffering. Joy is not being happy all the time, right? Happy comes from the word happenstance, which means that what's happening to you right now is what is giving you a sense of pleasure. And that can't always be true, right? Like we just read, I want to join in Christ's sufferings. Well, how does that work with joy, right? I actually, uh, believe it or not, I, I, I found an old de- uh, dictionary definition that I thought was actually really good. Uh, it, was, it was an older one, but I, I, th- I found the nugget of truth in here that I thought was good. It said, joy is an emotion invoked by well-being, success, or good fortune. All of those I don't think are right. But this last part, by the prospect of possessing what one desires, right? So you, are, you have an emotion invoked by the success you've obtained in possessing what you desire. That makes sense, right? Even in, in the sense of like, I am upset with the situation that happens. If I possess what I desire, there's joy that transcends that, right? If there's, if an analogy that I, that I thought of was, if my daughter's sick, that's a, very, that's a very difficult situation to be in. I'm not really happy the time that she's sick, especially if there's other things that go with that, right? Uh, having to clean things up. I don't want to get too graphic. But the fact that I have a daughter brings me joy, regardless of taking care of her when she's sick. So, in the, so that's a small uh, uh, understanding of what joy is. Joy is possessing something that transcends happenstance. What is that? Delight in God. We have God. John Piper said that Christ is the gospel. If you possess Jesus Christ, if you are in relationship with him, if you have reconciliation, you then possess the greatest thing. And if you desire that and you possess that, you will have joy even in the midst of godly sorrow, right? Because godly sorrow for our sins, repentance from our sin, that's always going to be mixed in a weird way with joy, right? Uh, the Christian life is messy, and humans are messy, right? We think of like, okay, now I'm in the, I'm, I'm joyful right now, and I'm sorrowful right now, but sometimes those things all mix, right? I'm happy one moment, and then I'm not happy the next, and, and I go through a torrent of emotion. But when we, when we think about this, when we meditate on the gospel and what God has done for us, and that we possess eternal life, which is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, right? Then we have joy. Yes, Bonnie. That's great. Did everyone hear that? It says it's not the absence of struggle, but the presence of God. We are going to struggle. We are going to have difficulty in this life. Because we just talked about how we had to love people that are unlovable, right? and we expect them to love us, and we're very unlovable sometimes. That's a struggle. And yet, when we have the presence of God, when we understand that we are in communion with him, we will have joy. Maybe not always. I think it's a struggle towards joy, but that is something that we can, con- we can cultivate. So we set our hope on Christ alone, and we understand that Nothing can satisfy us except that, right? We can chase after many things in the world. We can have uh, contentment for a while, joy for a while, uh, happiness for a while. 
but those things will eventually fade, right? Um, have you ever done something you really enjoyed and then one day you just wake up and it's like dry? You don't want to do it? I've had that a couple of times and it's been really weird for me. And it's one of those things where you think that once you do something you really enjoy, it will, it will just be inf infinite happiness, but it's not. But even though I struggle sometimes to open the word, whenever I'm in it, there's so much joy in reading the scriptures that is beyond even what I can understand because it doesn't make sense to me. I don't want to read the scripture sometimes, and yet I open it, and then I read it, and it's like life to me. And so I would encourage you to do that, to push past the spiritual struggle of reading or praying, because I, it's spiritual warfare. I, b I believe that, because if the Spirit of God is what lives inside of us, and possessing Christ is as amazing as we say it is, which the Bible says it is, it will invoke those emotions. What Paul talked about straining and pressing on, that, that comes here too. Cultivating joy is stoking up that desire, right? It's, it's the desire to know Christ and know his resurrection and looking forward to the heavenly kingdom, knowing that our lives will always be full of pain and suffering and people dying that we care about. Um, so if we, if we put our hopes and our dreams in this life, we will never have joy because you will be going good for a time, and then someone you really, really care about will die. And if your whole thing is, my life was perfect because I had this person with me, or I had this situation, or I had this house, or I had this life, that will be shattered eventually. Peace. Next one is peace. What is peace? And I better hurry up here. Peace is not the cessation of war and strife, okay? It's not, there's no conflict. The biblical terms of peace has to do with this idea of peace with God, right? When we talk about peace, it's peace with God. Which then, if you think about what peace is, so if it's, if it's peace with God, it's reconciliation, then when we think about blessed are the peacemakers, when you think about the Sermon on the Mount, it's those who go and are preaching the gospel to others so that they have peace with God, right? Not people are saying, oh, we need to stop all war and we're all hippies now and we are all apathetic to any kind of violence. Jesus said, buy a sword and take it with you, right? He understood that there would be conflict in the world and that self-defense is a real thing, right? You need to preserve your life and the lives of those who you care about. What peace is talking about when it talks about this is this peace that uh, is with your creator, this reconciliation, this binding back together of the broken relationship. That is what peace is. So how do we pe cultivate peace in our own minds, and how do we cultivate peace in um, the minds of others, if that makes sense? So we, once again, we set our minds on the gospel. We set, up, uh, we set our minds on the peace that we already have achieved with God, that reconciliation that we have. We think about the love of God for us in Christ. And what we try to cultivate is a, uh, a quiet spirit of those who don't seek unnecessary strife, if that makes sense. There is strife that will occur when we bang up to other worldviews and other people that say there's another way to God, there's another way to have reconciliation. But in other things, we seek, and this kind of works with patience, right? We seek to understand if there is a real fight that needs to be fought or if peace is better. It's very difficult and it's very abstract because it's situational, right? There's, there's not a clear, um, a clear set of rules here. That dovetails well into patience. 
Patience is not an appearance of long-suffering. This is, a, this is a difficult thing. There are people that appear patient, and just because they don't care. It's apathy, right? Uh, let's, let's be honest about this with ourselves, too, right? It's like, oh, you're so patient. It's like, well, I don't really care. I don't mind waiting in the lines for four hours for a ride at Disneyland. There's some people that don't. They don't mind doing it. That doesn't make them patient. It just means that they don't care. They're just like watching people. They're on their phone, right? That's not patience. Patience is actually uh, an ability to remain steadfast in uh, the situation of persecution or attack, right? So in a situation where someone is, is persecuting you or you're in an argument or you're being attacked, the ability to be steadfast and long-suffering. It's interesting because when you look up patience, if you do a Bible word study for the word patience, that the, the, the term that's translated patience, you'll get a lot of different passages that don't have the word patience in them. A lot of them are things like, in your notes, you'll see it's Exodus 34, uh, 6 through 7, where the Lord passes before Moses and says, the Lord, the Lord, a, mer- a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will no, by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children of the third and fourth generation. Very famous passage. But that part where it says steadfast, where it says slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that's the idea of patience, right? Slow to anger. We have a, a ton of verses like that, right? You think of James, you think of Romans. There's uh, Romans 2, 4 says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is, led to, is meant to lead you to, lead you to repentance? So the idea here is that there's an enduring that happens. There is a in the midst of not having peace with someone, you are patient towards them, trusting that the Lord has his elect and he's going to bring certain people to repentance at different times, right? So I pray for a person, I look towards a person, I preach the gospel to them, I don't expect them, I expect them to, I I want them to receive the gospel, but if they don't, I don't say, well, it's over, it's done, that's it. I gave them the gospel, I'm writing them off, right? They had their one chance, everyone gets one. No, they, it's, there's a long suffering, there's a patience towards those who reject the gospel, right? There's another passage, I didn't write it down, I'm sure you know it, where he says that you should be patient towards people, perhaps the Lord will have mercy on them and lead them to repentance, right? We don't know who the elect are. We don't know what God's timing is. We don't know the situation that he's working. But I I do know this, that when you look around the church, when you look around your life, and you know people who are old and who are young, who are saved at four and saved at 60, some who are saved in sickness, some who are saved in health, some who are saved rich, some who are saved poor, some who are saved in any kind of social situation you think of, you look and you realize it's not a, it's not like, well, if I had a life like this, I'd become a Christian. Right? God saves us all, specifically out of different walks of life, to show us that there is no formula. It's God's mercy alone. It's not anything that we've done, or that I haven't done, or that he just really likes the poor more than the rich. Some people think that. Some people think that the, back in the day it was, if you were really rich, God must love you, because look at all the blessings you received. But you look at the Old Testament, there's tons of things that says, don't judge unjustly for the rich or for the poor. Right? If the poor commits a crime, he gets the punishment, just like a rich person does. There's no partiality with God. But we like to think there's partiality, right? If I just did this, or I just did that, or if I grew up in a situation, I would be blessed in a certain way. There's a mystery there. When God chose Israel, he said, it was not because you were great, but because you were the least of nations, right? There's the glory of God is shown in the fact that they weren't great. 
And actually, that's kind of humbling for us, right? God chose us because we weren't great, but rather because we had a lot of problems. And when he saved us and our families and our friends see that change in us, they're like, wow, there's something here. There's something to this. So how do we cultivate patience to end? The scriptures that the, the lesson gives is Ephesians 4, 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Colossians 1, 11 through 12 says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. What, what I think those scriptures mean is this. We've already obtained what we desire, right? Talk about that. We have already received the greatest reward. God loves us not because of the works that we do, but because of what Christ has done for us. We can hold all those things simultaneously. And yet, we strive to motivate ourselves out of that love to bring glory to God, to make much of him, to show, and it's beyond appreciation, but that's part of it, right? It's, it's showing, like, it's serving God in such a way that we receive all that we desire in a way beyond what the world says. What I mean by that is, we're all made for a purpose, and that's to serve God. And the more deni- we deny that, the more we'll be unhappy. And yet, if we actually serve God, we will actually receive the thing we really desire, which is joy that passes, surpasses all understanding. I really believe that. Do I do that perfectly? No. But hopefully you've encouraged that, and we are, we'll continue with the rest of the uh, spiritual fruit next week. Father God, I thank you for these people and for this lesson. I pray that it would bless each person that has heard it, and that we would have some good conversations about it. And that as we meditate upon what you've done for us, Holy Spirit, that you would grow each one of us in the ways that we need to grow. You've given us a portion of spiritual fruits, but we all lack. And I pray that we would become mature in that growth. I pray, Father, that we would focus our minds now on the, on the sermon, and that we would meditate upon that, and that you would grow us even more into the image of Christ. Forgive us our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.